I am a recovering perfectionist and an aspiring good enoughist. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. Shit show nation. For any new listeners, I'm Andrea, and I'm a shit show, and uh, occasionally I'm going to do that. Shit show nation. And I understand if you, um, if that's not for you, you've been warned. So today... We are diving deep with Alana Carvalho. Some of y'all might follow her on Instagram. That's how I came across her. She is the codependent perfectionist, aka all of us. So she's a therapist. She has her podcast, The Codependent Perfectionist, and she's also the author of the book, Raising Empowered Children. And you will never in a million years guess what we are talking about today. We are talking about codependency and perfectionism. What if I said hot dogs versus hamburgers? (laughs) One day I should do that. I should just have um, a completely random topic, totally unrelated to adult child. You guys are like, Andrea, move it along. We're not amused. Uh, Codependency and perfectionism go hand in hand because they both are shame-based, right? They both are rooted in this belief that there's something inherently wrong with us And that if we're perfect, then we'll be happy. If we're perfect, then we'll be loved. If we're perfect, then we won't be abandoned. I want to read to you this quote that comes from uh, Strengthening My Recovery. So it says, Perfectionism is a response to shame-based and controlling homes. The child mistakenly believes that she can avoid being shamed if she is perfect in her thinking and acting. As children, many of us were either subtly or overtly shamed on a regular basis. We lacked true acceptance from our parents and learned to internalize the shame. We got the message that we were not okay as we were, thinking that if only we could be perfect, things would get better and our pain would end. But that was a losing battle. So we learned to associate being imperfect with being unlovable. And so for me, I never considered myself to be a perfectionist until I realized that procrastination is actually just a manifestation of perfectionism. And so it's it's both just like the manifestation of toxic shame. It's We talked about this shameless acting in and the shameful acting out. So the perfectionism is the, you know, the shameless acting in, doing whatever we can to be perfect, to avoid any future uh, shaming experiences versus with the procrastination, we are uh, leaning into this belief that we are not perfect and then just perpetuating more of that through our behaviors. So I've been talking a lot over the past few months about my battle, my struggle with procrastination. And I've realized the things that I put off day after day after day are things that I have this preconceived notion that 
uh, it's going to be hard, that I'm going to fail, that I'm not going to be able to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to do. And that's perfectionism. We put things off because we think that we're not going to be able to do them perfectly. And so for me, that mostly shows up as it relates to writing. There is this belief very deep belief that um, I'm going to sit down and it's going to be a struggle, that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work on it for an hour and I'm not going to have anything done. And this has been, this has been a theme for me my whole life. Like I remember being pretty young and just dreading writing a paper and always having to ask my, my mom for help with it. It wasn't that I didn't know what I wanted to say, but I just couldn't figure out how to put it into words. And I would just spend forever on one sentence, just rewording it and getting absolutely nothing done. And so I've been trying to figure out like what what is going on here? Like what is the the nugget or what needs to be healed? I have this memory of my mom being on the phone with the the head of the lower school, the elementary school, and her she was drunk and her just telling this this woman, this teacher, that they they're not doing a good job teaching us to write. I think it was like earlier that evening I was asking her to, you know, write my paper for me. What I'm wondering is if this is some sort of um, learned helplessness for me. It was a way for me to get attention from my mom is is kind of what I'm thinking. And just this belief has been internalized in me that I, writing's really hard for me and I don't know what I'm doing. And as soon as I sit down, I'm not going to get anything done. So I just thought that that was interesting and I'm curious if, I don't know, if anybody else uh, has something similar that they've experienced. Um, so yeah, so let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you need to damn the join Patreon. This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups and this is where fellow shit shows gather to heal but also not take ourselves too seriously at times. So if you did not listen to this past Saturday's Shit Show Saturday, you need to do that ASAP. If you are not wanting to join this community after you listen to that, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these fine ass shit shows. Kristen, James, Kenzod, Emily, Leisha, Kathy, Stephanie, Lydia, Joseph, Brandy, Claire, Karen, Sarah, another Sarah, Mark, Becca, Shiloh, Keely, Into the Light 35, uh, Nuvi, Josh, Brian, Aaron, Deneen, Anastasia, or Anastasia, I apologize, Jules, Ginger, and N. The shit show known as simply N. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, peeps. How about the rest of you guys go do what these people did? 
How about you do that? Because I know that there's a shitload of you listening right now that want to join that are scared to join. Fucking damn the join Patreon. Okay, let's do it right now. Um, Next, give me a little follow on the TikTok, on the Insta, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Y'all, it's a requirement. And you also need to do it because it really does help spread the podcast out. Okay. So do your duty. Don't be the one who is preventing a suffering adult child uh, from, from finding this podcast because you didn't give them a five-star review. Okay. Let's hop to it. I want a perfect body. All right, y'all we're in for a treat. We have the, the best name ever. I'm surprised that you got this. <laughs> we have Alana Carvalho. She is the codependent perfectionist. Hi. Yeah. I am. Where are you? <laughs> it's it's Andrea, just so you're not on. That's the only thing that you can do to like get yourself kicked off the podcast is if you call me Andrea. It's like a hell no. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that. So I will be very careful. Okay. What about, so forward. it's Alana. What about if, what if, what if people call you like Alana? <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. And I'm always like, I don't understand. I've never met an Alana. I imagine they're out there, but there's really more of us Alanas out there. I yeah, think, you know? I don't know if the Alanas are out there. Not cool. Just like the Andreas. Sorry. Um, I always say like, have you ever met an Andrew? Right. No, you haven't. <laughs> so you have your yep. podcast, the, the co- uh, codependent perfectionist, and then you have your book raising empowered children, which I want to get into too, but let's first start yep. with you. How the hell did you become a, well, uh, let's, cause I think that you, you talk a lot about the relationship that you had with your therapist who I think has since passed, but do you want to yes. talk about your, were you already a therapist by the time that you realized that you were a codependent perfectionist? So I was actually like in my therapeutic okay. training, thankfully, and I got to learn about it pretty early. And why life. did you, let's um, back up. Why yeah. did you decide that you wanted to go down this route? to be a therapist. Yeah. I'm one of those people who kind of always knew I was going to be a uh-huh. therapist and I'm not sure if I came into this lifetime knowing it, um, or it has to do with being a really sensitive child. Um, but at some point I just knew, you know, I was, that's what I was meant to do. And so I kind of just went straight for it and never turned back. And as a kid, I always like wished I was in therapy. I, I knew it would have been helpful for me. Um, but it was it was just something that wasn't accessible to me at that time. And then as I got into my adulthood, I was lucky enough to find an amazing therapist and she became my mentor. Um, and she's the first person who told me. Yeah, I was I, so I I started going to therapy when I was like set nine and it definitely was not ah. helpful. <laughs> That's when I, I got deemed the, you know, the identified patient of the family. Um, yeah. So, um, okay. So how t- talk about how she revealed to you that you were a codependent perfectionist. Well, in my therapist, um, her, her style was blunt. So I will, so one day I was talking to her about this issue I was having. I was like, I just don't get it. Like why, why is this happening? And she just turned to me and she said, because you're codependent. Mm-hmm. 
And, and like, it was just, you know, that's just how she said it. And I was like, wait, what, what do you mean? What does that mean? Um, and, you know, this was quite some time ago before it was as much of like a buzzword as, as it is today, but she went on to like, teach me over many years how my behavior was severely codependent. Really it was. And, and I've since, I mean, transformed greatly, but it's still something that I work on all the time. And I, I like to be honest about that because it's not to me, most of the stuff we work on therapeutically, it's not like, Oh, you just, you know, complete the work and move on. But it's really, these are like lifelong, um, you know, issues for most of us. Yeah. And I think that's like so important to recognize that there's not going to be like, um, you know, like an end point in many ways. I think that that's like a, a good thing. Cause I, you know, we're just constantly mm-hmm. given opportunities to evolve. So do you view codependency as being trauma-based? I think it certainly can be trauma-based. Um, sometimes it stems, or a lot of times it stems from what's called complex That's PTSD. That's what my, all my podcast is about. Everyone listening right now has complex there PTSD. So. <laughs> so everybody out yes. here knows about that. Great. Um, because it's it's not so known by so many people. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure you explain the difficulties because so many people grow up not understanding, you know, what, yeah, what it is that they've experienced. And oftentimes it's because it is complex PTSD and, and they know. Um, so certainly codependency comes from that. Other times it can come from, I mean, there, to me, it's a mixture of, you know, the trauma, um, kind of your personality coming in, coming into this life, you know, um, that can really be set in stone, your relationships with your siblings, your relationships with your parents, um, birth order can be a part of it, you know, like, there's so many factors that come into it. So it's, to me, it's never just like one piece. It's, it's the combination. Mm -hmm. So talk about what kind of set the stage for you that kind of bred your codependency issues. Sure. So growing up, I mean, I, I was always told that I was a sensitive child, which I think going through therapy, there was, there was a time where I really resented Mm -hmm. that's that's um because it felt like I was being told that there was something wrong with me you know like I was wrong for how I responded to what was going on around me um and since I I've come to kind of take ownership over it and and I do believe I was a sensitive child um I think it could have been dealt with much differently because those of us who are sensitive children we can really pick up on a lot that's going on around us like we may be very empathic and, you know, feel like we can feel other people's feelings or experiences, or, you know, we're very sensitive to how our parents speak to us or how our teachers speak to us or respond to us. And I think when we don't have people who come, who are really willing to work with us on our sensitivities, it can just kind of morph into this extreme codependency um, in your childhood and obviously later into your adulthood as well. You know, it doesn't just go away. In fact, it often gets worse throughout life. So that for me was, was part of, um, I think what really contributed to it. Did you have siblings? You know, I have an older sister, um, you know, and I was a much more like um, kind of, one in the family that wanted to make sure everything was okay. Nobody was fighting or if people were fighting, I would feel it really intensely. 
Um, so I was kind of the one that absorbed all of the feelings in the family where, whereas, you know, other, other people in the family were more expressive, expressive of their feelings. And, and I wasn't, I, it was really inward and not all codependents are like that. Like I said, it's, it can, you know, not only does it come from different places, it can also look very different. Um, but for me, it was a lot of stuffing my emotions, not sharing how I was feeling, um, and, and then experiencing really like a low level of depression throughout much of my early life into my early adulthood until I started really working on it therapeutically. Aside from the relationship with your parents, where do you feel like, what was kind of the first relationship, whether that was in childhood or teenage or, you know, early adulthood where you really were exhibiting like codependency tendencies, traits? Well, for me, I really noticed that it was showing up kind of in all of my relationships, you know, like all of my friendships, my romantic relationships. Um, and it would look different based on the relationship I was in. And, and that's important, too, because I think sometimes people are like, well, I'm not codependent because in 90 percent of my life, I'm OK. And I'm like, yeah, but there's for all of us, there's certain relationships that like hook us in a little bit more than others for whatever reason. Um, for me, definitely like in romantic relationships, there was a lot of work that I had to do, um, and friendships too, in terms of like speaking up, sharing how I was feeling, sharing when I wasn't okay with something, learning how to say no. Um, all of that stuff was, was really difficult for me. And it's still, it's not necessarily, even after all these years, I mean, I'm very outspoken at this point in my life, but it's not necessarily the go-to to always express what's going on for me. I have to be more thoughtful about it. What was your perception of your childhood? Let's say pre-realizing that you struggle with codependency and then through that process, did you, was it like a big aha moment for you? It was huge because once I started to realize uh, and understand what it was about, which by the way, most people I think don't really understand the concept of codependency because of how complex it is. So once I was really like learning about it and understanding it and seeing it being reflected in my life, I, I was seeing it everywhere. I was like, wow, you know, like, cause once you start to look at it in one mm -hmm. dynamic, you see it in so many dynamics, you see it at work, you see, you know, it's, it's, was it everywhere. initially being brought um, up when, when your therapist said that to you, like, it's because you're codependent. Was it related to a romantic relationship? I actually, at that time, we were primarily looking at mm -hmm. friendships and that's where I started. And the reason I started there therapeutically, which is, which I think is important is because those were the easier relationships in a sense to tackle. And, and I think that's important. Like when you begin working on yourself therapeutically, you don't usually go to the hardest person first, you know, to look at that relationship. I mean, you can, and that's often may maybe what brings yeah. you into therapy. It's usually easier to start like making changes in some of the less risky and less scary dynamics in mm -hmm. your life was did you go through an anger phase like feeling really pissed off at your parents i was stuck in anger therapeutically for god knows how long years and years and years and i think that's probably some of the um maybe misconceptions about therapy you know or or people don't realize going into it that it's going to take you a long time and probably bring up maybe 
some really negative feelings that you've been suppressing for so many years. And there's like this unrealistic expectation, I think, for so many people like, okay, so um, I felt it and now it's time to move on. And I'm like, oh, no, we might be here for like a long, long time and that that's okay. And And that's actually part of the therapeutic process, which it's different than, you know, sometimes we can get really stuck in victim in our therapeutic process, which, you know, again, there's an appropriateness of that, but we can sometimes flounder in that place if if we stay too long. Um, but again, like I said, it took me years to get move through some of my negative feelings, anger certainly being one of them. Um, and I think that's true for, for most therapeutic processes especially when you're looking at things like complex PTSD and that kind of How stuff. How were you able to work through that anger? And I think uh, you're totally right. I think it just, it's like, we kind of, I think we vacillate between, it's like a continuum, right? And I think that we kind of vacillate between having like empathy or compassion, like for our parents, realizing that they're also just a product of their own upbringing to the anger. And I think that there's room to like hold space for both, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I think where I see it being dysfunctional in a sense with is when we when people want to jump past the negative feelings and move to the empathy mm-hmm. place. Like the yes, the ideal end point is a place that includes empathy for the other person's experience and can still hold space for your own mm-hmm. experience, right? But what a lot of people do is they kind of do this spiritual bypass thing where we're emotional bypass, where it's like, I'm just going to move right into understanding what was going on for them and why they did that. And it's like, listen, guys, the problem with that is that you need time to really feel and and just be in the space of, of what it was like to experience whatever it is that you experience without jumping to why the other person did it or what made them do it that that will be an important piece down the line but but you can't kind of go there at the same time well it's like that's essentially codependency right in a way because it's like you're just like giving them a free pass for you're you're discounting and dismissing your own feelings and emotions by just going straight to the to the understanding Absolutely. And I think it's just so scary for a lot of people to, you know, they're not, maybe not doing it consciously, but subconsciously, it's so scary to acknowledge those feelings that it's a lot easier for us to just go to that automatic place of understanding. For sure. Yeah. That's why like the recovery process, like it, it can be ugly in a sense, you know, because like you are going to have to be real and really feel all of the stuff that you've suppressed for so long and that you didn't want to look at. And so there should be a lot of negative feelings, but the point is, is to heal those feelings so that they're not festering beneath the surface as they've done for, you know, the majority of our lives for those of us, um, you know, who are coming in at it in our adulthood. What was, what did your relationship with your parents look like as you were kind of going through that initial few years of working through this stuff? Well, therapeutically, I mean, I, you know, I needed space, I think to really, um, to really look at what was coming up for me and what, what was going on. Um, I remember my therapist telling me a story about her own experience where she had had 
basically she was working on some of this stuff with her own therapist years ago. And she said to her parent, um, I need a year. I need a year of um, no contact while I look at everything and really just kind of get into it all. And, and I just hope that you can respect that. And she said every day she prayed that her mother wouldn't pass away during that time. And when the year was up, she asked her mother if they, she would go to therapy with her. And her mother said no. And so, you know, that, that there was another journey there that, that she went on. But I think the point for her was, and, and it's not requirement, but that sometimes, sometimes you do need space when you're looking at some of this stuff. And so that's, and that, that's okay. What codependents often do is that we, we won't say it. We just like distance ourselves from the person because we don't want to, we don't want to face what's going on. Or make conversation. Them feel right. And you don't have to share everything, but it is important to be honest to some extent, like, you know, I'm going to be doing some serious work on myself. I need some space right now. So I won't be reaching out as much or I won't be seeing you as much or whatever it is. Yeah. I think it's like navigating that because I think a lot of the times, especially, you know, in these dysfunctional family systems, you know, our, our families can really lash out when we make statements like that, you know? And that's why it's so important that you have support and also that you have that your therapist understands these types of dynamics, especially like a narcissistic dynamic, because to me, that's a very um, specialized dynamic that not every therapist understands. And so the problem is that you could actually go to therapy and not receive the type of support that I believe is needed. You're working through that specific type of dynamic because it's very different than your average dynamic with somebody else. And I think if a therapist misses that because they're not skilled in understanding narcissism, um, they may incorrectly provide feedback to your support around it in a way that may not be helpful. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that goes for complex PTSD as well. You know, my experience and the experience of so many people listening is that we sat in therapy for years without, you know, they might draw the connection that it's somehow childhood related, but not be able to identify that like, we're actually like what we're experiencing is complex PTSD. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. How is that as a therapist? Um, getting your, your, your clients, your patients to see that they, what they are experiencing is, is complex trauma. Sometimes it is so difficult because unlike other issues that, um, are either more accepted, more clear, don't involve dynamics with other people, um, they're like more willing to accept that for some reason, you know, um, but complex PTSD, which by the way, um, if anyone's listening and they want to really like understand it, I'm, I imagine you may have mentioned it, but Pete Walker's PTSD is, is kind of the Bible around it, but it really is, is speaking to like so many people who grew up in a household that, for the most part, might have been actually okay looking, you know, like, it, there might not have been anything that 
looked so incredibly crazy, um, but that there was a lot of emotional abuse that was going on. And that type of abuse is much more insidious, uh, much more difficult for people to understand. And so it becomes very um, hard in their adulthood to actually recognize when they've experienced that level of emotional abuse, um, particularly because they've been abused to believe that they weren't experiencing yeah. abuse, right? So, you know, it, it's something that you kind of can tell from your own behavior and experience, like something's not right. Um, you're, you're struggling like relationally or you're struggling with your self-esteem or there's, there's all different ways that it can kind of show up for you and, and often a mixture of all of that stuff. And you're, and it's really because of what was experienced in childhood, you know, and, and again, like it, it can come, um, you know, in, into these households where, and sometimes it's, it's very clear. I mean, I've seen people go through significant trauma. Um, that's obviously complex PTSD, but I've also seen people be in households where there was severe mental health issues or substance abuse and not recognize the impact that that had on them, um, time and time again, going through, um, you know, a daily experience of it. Like P Walker says, it's really more of having a, like, a lot of the small T's rather than the big T's, meaning the big traumas in life that are very clear. Um, it's a lot of the small traumas over and over and over again. I think what was most difficult and still I'm still working through it. Um, you know, I grew up with an, with in an alcoholic home. Um, but the thing I think that made it most challenging for me to kind of work through is that I'm somebody that I was never told I was a piece of shit. You know, like I was never told you're dumb or, and, and it was just all of that. So that's, I think what's been, what was most challenging for me because on a conscious level, I thought that I liked myself. I thought that I had high self-esteem. I thought that I had high self-worth. Um, but the reality was that my actions clearly showed otherwise but I think it's so much more, like you said, it's so much more insidious. And I think in some ways, even more challenging to work through when mm -hmm. things did seem so, I mean, granted, I, I knew that things were not the best, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, when it's just so much more subtle, it's so hard to see the way that it impacts us. And I think the thing that was most um, a big light bulb moment for me was just realizing how my, my actions did not align with the beliefs that I thought I held about myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an important piece of awareness there, you know, that, that you were even able to see that. And I agree. It's, it's, it's very challenging, I think, for most people to recognize, um, particularly if they generally came from a loving household, it's very difficult for people to look at and say um, where things might have impacted them in a negative way that now are pretty significant in nature, you know? Um, and a lot of people see that as blaming. 
And I think that stops them from doing it. But there's an important piece where it's not to me, of course, it's not about blaming, but it's about trying to understand um, who's responsible for what, in a sense, you know, like I, like, I'll say like, okay, but whose piece of the pie is it? Um, Because we need to understand that in order to understand where some of this is coming from, because some of it is trauma, some of it is learned behavior from the people around us, right? Um, You know, some of it, was obviously, you know, it's experiential in in various ways. So it's such, it's just so important, but it's difficult work and not everybody wants to do it for that for many reasons. You know, one of which is having to take an honest look at our childhood. So let's talk about the, the connection between codependency and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, codependency is, is um, the thing that came first. And I talk about that in my book that it was my first awareness, but perfectionism has been with me forever. You know, like I, it, and oftentimes those of us who are codependents, we are often perfectionists because it's all coming from the same kind of place. It's like this place of low self-esteem and not believing in ourselves, not trusting ourselves. Um, And so instead we're kind of looking outwardly Um, to try to get our sense of self-worth or get our sense of identity. Um, And so for me, like, you know, achieving in different ways became so important um, because it was part of my identity and it, it was, um, you know, what, what was defining me at that time. I really didn't have an identity and it, also, I, I think one of the important pieces, and again, all of this stuff, there's just so much to it, but, I often think of codependence as um, relational perfectionists Mm. in a sense, because they're trying to uh, relate in a way that kind of above and beyond, you know, it's like, it's, they're just, it's about unrealistic expectations that we have for ourselves. And that can come out in our relationships. It can come out in our work. It could come out in our everyday life. And for me, it was a mixture of many of those things. So I, it was all over the place. Yes, that belief that if we don't show up perfectly in the relationship, that we're going to be abandoned. Right, exactly. You know, so we're trying to do it right and say the right thing and make sure we, you know, never uh, miss a beat and, you know, whatever it is, right? And so it's just it's just so connected in that way. So talk about some like baby steps that you took as far as starting to change some of these dynamics and learned behavior as it relates to perfectionism. Sure. So perfectionism wise, um, and, and it's interesting, I was, <laughs> you have to take a lot of risks here. So, you know, I started looking at where I was, um, where I was creating stress in my life uh, that ultimately I determined was unnecessary, but little things like how much I was studying for a test or how late I was staying at work or how much I was trying to get done or any of those things where you start to see like, I'm putting this pressure on myself, not to say other people might not be as well, but I'm joining them in it or I'm allowing this to be something way more um, impactful than it actually needs to be. And it's up to me to take a step back if I so choose and say like, it's actually not that important. Like there was a point I remember in graduate school that I was like, 
oh my God, my grades don't matter. Like it only mattered to me, you know, like I was the one making it matter. And I was putting so much pressure on myself. And then I was like, Alana, stop. You're like it, enough, you know, and it's not to say at that point, I, I didn't stop. <laughs> yeah, you never did caring. it ever again. <laughs> I didn't studying for class, but I stopped making it mean what mm. it meant before. And when I stopped doing that, I started to actually learn in school for the first time in my life. In like my early 20s, I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually learning. This is what you're supposed to do in school. But I couldn't um, I could never get there because it was always about the end goal and the end result. And, you know, I think when we can we can start to change that for ourselves. Like, what is this really about? School should be about learning. Let's be real. It shouldn't be about what grade you get at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, as perfectionists, our minds are kind of warped. And so it's it's up to us to start looking at that stuff. Yeah. And that's also too kind of that addiction to excitement and fear. That feeling is our baseline, right? Like that stress state is what we right. crave. It's what's being uncomfortable is comfortable. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, you brought up victim mindset, which I'd like you to get into, but just kind of what are some of the, um, the biggest roadblocks that you see getting in the way of people working through their codependency and perfectionism? Well, as I kind of mentioned, I think there's a lot of risk involved and people are not willing to take the risk. And I understand why. I mean, you might lose relationships. You might even lose a job. You know, there's there's there is um, consequence for us changing the dynamics. Um, you know, a lot of times our family may have a very strong re- have a strong reaction to the work that we're doing and how we may show up differently. Um, so again, like it involves a lot of risk, which I think um, makes it difficult. Cause when you think about like, and I think in essence, it's all the same thing, but when you think about like drug addiction or alcoholism, you get to a point where like, it's life or death. You know what I mean? Like it's, you're forced to taste, take the risk. Whereas it seems right. like the stakes are like a lot lower, which I don't think they necessarily are, but like when you're dealing with, you know, more of these relational dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, you're right. Like we don't get how severely we are impacted by things like our codependency and our, our perfectionism. Um, But the reality is, as you kind of mentioned, like it's a huge, um, impact on our on our bodies on our minds on our souls on everything and it's hard to impress upon people like how amazing it is to get to the other side Mm -hmm. of it um but yeah i mean willingness to change you know i mean my therapist used to say alana there's you know 90 percent of the population's walking around and they're not coming in this door you know because they're not willing to take the risk and do that work and i'm like it's true. You know, that I think, thank God nowadays it's kind of changing. It seems to be people are way more open to like learning and 
um, looking at themselves in, in different ways, which to me is exciting. Um, but the reality is, is most people aren't taking a deep dive in, in, into therapy. And there's a lot of responsibility we also take. It's not just about blaming other people. I mean, the number one is actually taking responsibility for ourselves. And, and I think people are scared to do that. Yeah, I think that that's where the blaming piece really comes into play too. It's like, we're not responsible for what happened to us, but we are responsible for the healing. Like we can't make Mm -hmm. our parents go to therapy for us. That would be great if they could. (laughs) I want to, let me grab this book because I heard you talking about um, the, what is it? The Cartman's drama triangle. Is that it? Cartman? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the, um, this is like the, one of the adult child books, it's the laundry list workbook, but they have, let's oh. see. So they have, they have it in here, but they don't explain it at all. Like, I like they don't even like talk about like, it's like in here, but it's, it doesn't explain it. Like, this is it. There's just like a picture. So, um, I wanted to see if you could, um, explain it some what's what i've never talked yeah. about it on here so what is the backstory of it so the who the hell is cartman <laughs> yeah who he be who the hell cartman? <laughs> <laughs> um i actually have a webinar on this that people are welcome to check out basically the the cartman's drama triangle it has many names okay so it has it's called the cartman's drama triangle sometimes people call it the codependency triangle sometimes people call it um i think even like the narcissistic uh dynamic triangle or whatever um but regardless whatever the hell you want to call it what it (laughs) yeah whatever the hell you want to call it it's a triangle and on the three points um are victim persecutor and rescuer Okay. And when we're in codependent dynamics, we actually usually um, take on all of those roles at different times. Um, We may have a role that's most comfortable for us, like many of us like to stay in rescuer. Um, But then usually we move around the triangle throughout a dynamic with someone. So the rescuer is the person who is the savior. They're trying to fix everything, trying to make everything okay. Um, make sure everybody else is okay, right? And then the victim is the woe is me, um, you know, where we get we can get stuck and feel like um, life is unfair and I have no ability to change it and I'm stuck here. Um, and then the persecutor is the one who's who's coming back and they're pissed and they're like, and you always do this. And, you know, and I tried to help you and you didn't take the help. And, um, and so as codependents, we often move around the triangle with other people, right? So we're in rescuer, someone else is in victim, right? So where, um, yeah, where would the, where would the like addict or the alcoholic, like, it, well, let's just take that as a dynamic, but like, how would that play out? Like, would the, would the alcoholic also switch into the various roles? Like would the, how would the what did, what would the persecutor position look like for somebody who's in active addiction? So the persecutor in that position might be someone who's who's like basically like get the hell out of here, leave me alone. You're always trying to fix mm-hmm. me. I'm sick of you. You you know they're they're done. They're pissed, right? Usually when we're in the persecutor role, 
Um, and then, you know, maybe a few weeks later, they're back to being like, oh, hey, I need some money. Oh, could you help me mm -hmm. do this? Oh, you know, it was just the alcohol talking, whatever it is. And then they're back into the victim place. And then we move into the rescuer. Uh, role. rescuer. Mm -hmm. And so how is this helpful as it relates to healing? So it's helpful because this is another place that we can look at to say, who am I right now? Who, where am I in this triangle and this dynamic? Um, and the only way to truly heal is actually to step out of the yeah. triangle. Right. So we stop running around it with the other people in our lives and we start taking on a whole different role that doesn't exist within the codependency and area. What, what, what are we going to call that? Now, I don't know. Maybe, what yeah, maybe I should come up yeah. with a name. Yeah, you need to come up with a new, like, it seems like we got the problem. Right. Maybe I'll call it the recoverer. The recoverer. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What was I going to ask you? I love how you talk about how healing from codependency is that sweet spot between um, selflessness and selfishness. And I was hoping you could get into yeah. that some. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to say as codependents, we kind of vary um, on the spectrum between the two extremes. We're very extreme as codependents, just like addicts are. Um, and it's kind of two sides of the same coin, addiction and codependency. Um, and so we can often go from selflessness to, to selfishness. Um, there is something selfish about codependency because at, at the end of the day, um, it is actually mm -hmm. about us. Mm -hmm. If that makes absolutely you know, a lot of happens, um, even though, you know, it can look so nice. Um, but ultimately it's really obviously about our own feelings and our behavior is often acted out in this very like selfless way, um, which breeds a lot of resentment in relationships and, and ends up being not helpful for anybody because usually we're enabling in that place um, and not taking care of ourselves. So what I like to say is that in recovery, we find this in-between point and that's the place of true self-love. You know, I know that's talked about a lot these days, but it's a place where we take care of ourselves first um, and not in a, in a selfish way, um, but in like a, a very loving way. And, you know, it doesn't mean we can't be supportive of other people when we're in that place, but other people don't come before us anymore. And we learn how to truly nurture ourselves, take care of ourselves, be our own parent to ourselves, um, you know, do whatever it is that we need to do to feel genuinely fulfilled in life and not so depleted, um, and so many other negative feelings that, that are obviously going on in those other places. What does that look like for you as it relates to also being a mom? Yeah. <laughs> so that's like the biggest one. This is, you know, and I talk about it in my book, but I think those of us who are mothers, it's like, what does that mean? You know? Um, and I think for me, what I reflect on and, and again, I don't do it perfectly and I don't expect that of myself nowadays, but it's about, um, knowing what my limits are, knowing when I need support and asking for it, um, knowing when I need to really put myself before something, um, someone else, 
Um, and some, so sometimes that means saying no to something that maybe I really want to do um, as a parent, but I can't. Or maybe it means calling to see if somebody else could pick up my kids from school. Or, you know, it, it means that I always show up for therapy um, on a consistent basis, despite what might be going on in the rest of my life. You know, it's like all of the it's putting boundaries in a lot of areas so that I know that I'm making sure that I'm OK, um, because if I'm not OK, I can't parent well and then nobody's OK. And you know, I think it's so easy for us parents to get into a place where we're just like, we're just surviving, you know, and like, we're just doing whatever we need to do to make sure other people are okay. Um, and we're not okay. And I'm like, that's, that's not going to work long term for everybody, you know? So to me, it, there has to be a shift. And, and again, of course, like, as a mom, it's unrealistic to think that that's going to happen 24 um, seven. But I know if I'm doing it more of the time, I'm able to show up way better um, on the day to day. Yeah, you've obviously done a lot of work on yourself and as well as, you know, like education, but has there been maybe anything even recently, but or anytime being a parent where you've realized like, oh, shit. Like I'm, I've been doing this and kind of what does that look like as far as finding a place of um, like forgiveness and compassion for yourself as a parent and also like shifting that behavior or making, you know, changes. I think that uh, like for the most part probably comes up on, I would say a weekly, (laughs) not sometimes daily. But, you know, some one of I mean, I had a realization even a couple months ago where I was like, oh, my God, Um, at times I was making decisions based on what I felt like makes me seem or look like or maybe even tell myself that that's like the best decision as a parent, whether it's like being at all of these events or showing up to, you know, to schooled for pickup every day or whatever, whatever it is. Right. And I was like, you have to stop doing that because you're putting so much stress on yourself and you, you, it's actually not helpful. The most helpful thing for any family dynamic in my situation is that the parents are well enough so that they can parent from a place of um, of like calm and peace, mm-hmm. you know? And again, is that, you know, realistic the majority of the time? No, but I do, I do know, um, that there's, if I'm not taking care of myself, nobody's going to do it for me. And I'm not a great parent from that place. I can be mean, I could be short, I could be resentful, I could be frustrated. I, I'm, there's so many things that pop up and I'm like, no, like that's not good for anybody. Right. Have you had any experiences? Cause I think one thing that commonly happens is that, um, as a result of becoming a parent, that a lot of that childhood shit that maybe is unresolved comes to the surface. Have you had experiences oh. with that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how could it not? I think parenting is like one of the areas where 
everything comes up again for you, regardless of how much work you've done on yourself. Um, it just like, I'm like, how, I don't understand how it can. So like, for me, you know, my therapist had warned me about that many years ago, like, everything's going to come back up at, at the various times mm-hmm. in your life where happen. Um, and to me, parenting is probably one of the biggest of those. So for sure, all of my codependency stuff came up, all of my perfectionism stuff has come up. And it just it's like, here for me to work through, I believe to take it to like a whole nother level of my healing that I would never have understood previously and could never have done because I wasn't in that place. But now that I'm here, it's like, yep, Alana, you're going to work it through all the time in this like way more intense way because you're a parent now and, and you are impacting two other people's lives in conjunction to your own. Was there a particular like age that coincided with something that you experienced as a kid that was particularly poignant for you? Um, I think I, I, I would say that, yes, that stuff comes up for me all the time, not necessarily one specific thing, but what I recognize, this was an important awareness that I got for myself was that nobody explained to me that you're not, that, that you're not going to be good at every phase of parenting, (laughs) if that makes sense. And I think that some of us like are way more, um, for whatever reason, like able to take on certain phases than others. Mm. Someone would have kind of explained that to me, like, you may not be good at, um, you know, being a parent of a toddler, but you may be really good at this other phase of life that happens after that, or the phase before that. I think that would have taken it like, ah, okay, like this phase, you know, like this is where I shine and this is where I don't shine, or this is, this is way more challenging for me for whatever reason. Um, and I think that that reason has to do with, it can have to do with our own childhood trauma. I also think it has to do with like our personalities and if we, and to me, so this is part of the perfectionism piece, like nobody tells us this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like there's so many, like nobody tells you why not? Because if they, if they told me, then maybe it wouldn't have felt so full of pressure, you know, like, oh, you actually, like, there's this idea you have to be a good parent through like every phase of parenting and know exactly what to do. No, you know, I realized I'm actually really great at parenting. Um, I love like the little, little ones, but then I like shine at like four plus. Yeah. I was going to say what, like what, what stage was a challenge for you? I think for me, like the toddler phase just didn't, it it didn't connect. I am not, I'm just not that, um, I I don't know. I'm not like, what's the word? Um, It's not easy for me, but there's an ease about parenting like this middle age children that that I actually love. And it just comes much more naturally to me and lends to who I am as a person. Um, And so I, I think I've been able to take a step back and say, like, listen, this is where you shine. You don't you're not supposed to shine everywhere in life, just like you're not shine everywhere in school and or everywhere um, at work or, you know, all of this stuff. It's like, we got to take the pressure off of ourselves. Yeah, that's hard. Because I think especially if we have this awareness of how our childhood 
impacted us, people are so freaked out that they're going to fuck up their kids. Right. Well, and that's what I write about in the book is that most of us then go to the opposite extreme mm-hmm. of trying to kind of compensate for all of that stuff. And that actually doesn't really work mm-hmm. either, unfortunately. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's finding that balance. And what's actually true is that when we figure out how to be like a good enough parent, that's actually the best parent to our kids. Um, but that requires us to like let go of a lot of our um, expectations for ourselves. Right. Which is tough. We don't want to let. I love how you bring spirituality into the conversation as well. Um, So I'd love for you to touch upon that. For me, spirituality is such a big piece of my own healing. Um, My therapist was a spiritual therapist. I'm a spiritual therapist. Um, What do you mean when you say that? I mean that I, I have like a strong faith in spirituality. I incorporate it into my work um, because to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. If that, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like, it makes a lot of sense for so many things. Um, One of which is that like, you know, both codependency and perfectionism have a lot to do with control. And to me, the only real way, to fully let go of control is when we trust in some sort of higher power. And then we, you know, we're like, listen, I don't have it. Somebody else has it, has it for me. Not to say I'm not, um, I'm a, I'm a participant and I'm a co-creator here in, in the life, but I don't need to control it. In fact, I actually can't control it. Um, and when we can do that, there's just so much healing that goes on. So for me, it's like, it's an everyday essential piece when, when I'm letting go of something, I'm not just letting go, but I'm like letting it go and giving it to God at the same time and saying like, you got this, I don't have it. And whatever is meant to happen is actually what's going to happen, whether um, I like it or not. And so it's meant for me, you know, and sometimes that means there's going to be a lot of growth. Yeah. I love, I heard you talk about that on one of your podcasts um, about, especially when we're getting in the way of, you know, other people who are struggling, how we're, we're getting in the way of their, you know, their spiritual pain and growth and the life lessons that they have in front of them. Yeah. I mean, I firmly believe that. I think oftentimes as codependents, we just want to like save everybody from their own experiences and their own struggles and difficulties. And I'm like, no, you're kind of, you're, you're getting in the way there. Like you don't know what is meant for other people to go through and why that's important for them. So you to, to act like you know what's best for them to me is basically saying like, you don't know what's going on, God, I got this, you know? And I'm like, no, take a step back, let them move through this because it might be extremely important for their spiritual growth. Mm, so hard. <laughs> if only it were that easy. <laughs> I know. Do you work a lot with couples? I do work a lot with couples. I love couples. When tell, uh, when are their dynamics or, or are there experiences where you will say to them, this, this ain't working you like it's, this is not productive. Absolutely. I, I have kind of a rule of thumb, which is that um, within three months of the work, together, we should know where we're going and like, if this is workable or not. 
usually what happens is that I see there's couples that come in and, and it's not necessarily how much is going on, but it's how much they're willing to put in change um, the dynamic. And you as a, or I as a couples counselor can kind of quickly tell within a short period of time, who's willing to do the work and who's not. And so a lot of couples counseling initially becomes about like clarity, like clarity around, um, are we both actually willing to do the work here? What about when you see that one of the individuals in the relationship is a narcissist and yep. do you ever, cause I think, I don't know if you know, Elizabeth Earnshaw, but she was talking about how sometimes she would pull you know, pull the other, um, person in the relationship aside and say like, you know, this is like narcissistic abuse. And like, here's the information on that. Like, do you ever have those experiences? Absolutely. I even have that. Yeah. I've, I've had that, um, in, in like romantic couples, I've had that in parent child relationships where I've had to pull, you know, the child, the adult child, not, you know, it's not usually a child child, but the adult child aside and say, um, your, your parent appears to be a narcissist and, and here's the information you have to understand on here. They, they may be unable to change. And so, because actually couples counseling, um, with narcissistic dynamics is generally not Mm -hmm. recommended. It's definitely not recommended with somebody who doesn't understand narcissism um, and narcissistic person disorder because it, 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 for so many reasons, but it can actually further the trauma that's being experienced in the dynamic. So, um, so negative, right? So yes, if I see that that's what's going on, I am going to absolutely share that with, um, you know, the partner. Um, and also, you know, be mindful, like, that it's on a spectrum. And so I usually take some time to try to really see where because there's, there's people with narcissistic traits that actually yeah. can change and, and progress. Um, I'm talking about when we're at like a pretty severe point is when it's really important to, to stop and say, we got to talk about what's going on here. How often does that conversation not go well? <laughs> uh, well, um, with the identified narcissist or with the, the with partner? The partner. You know, I, it's, it's more rare that it, I would say that it doesn't go well. They may not understand the severity of it when I share it with them. They're usually like a little bit confused and like, okay, interesting. Um, but I don't usually have someone who completely fights that back. Um, that could certainly happen, especially in dynamics where people are severely abused, but they less likely to come into couples work. To and so then with. how do you, um, let's say that that's going on and, and you don't think that it's productive to continue the couple's therapy, then how are you, um, communicating that to the partner the person in the relationship that is the narcissist? Well, the reality is I, my belief is, uh, and you know, there's, there's minor caveats to this, but my belief is that 
if I'm going to say something to one person, I have to be willing to say it to the other. And I don't have a problem telling somebody, I think that you have narcissistic personality issues and needs to be looked at further. Um, you know, they don't, that people don't always take well for sure. (laughs) Um, but someone's got to be willing to say it. And I feel pretty strongly about that, that that's like a very important piece of the work. Um, if I don't think it's important to phrase in that way, I may phrase it in a different way. Um, I usually don't shy away from this kind of stuff. That's not really my personality. So I'm usually pretty upfront. Um, but I will say that um, it's also important to kind of understand that it's about ability to change mm-hmm. and say something like, I don't believe here that we have the ability to actually change this circumstance and so at this point couples counseling becomes counterproductive and and that's that is the reality to it Mm -hmm. yeah I think the same thing with with parent and child like I mean I don't think my therapist would ever think it's a good idea to bring my parents in for for therapy (laughs) no only you've gotten to a point like there are times if you're at a point where you are feeling very strong, very aware of the dysfunction. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily that. And again, that's usually years down the line, the work, but I don't have a problem with it. If you, if you're fully okay with the fact that you may leave and, and feel totally um, unresolved in any way, like there's, you may get nothing out of it. And if you're okay with that, and they may actually make you try to feel crazier, you need to know all of that. Um, before you would okay bringing someone into that dynamic um, and and hopefully know that, you know, your therapist has your back. So she's going to, or she's going to support you, um, you know, very much so in that dynamic. Let's say somebody is at that point and they've, and they've been in therapy for years. I mean, would there ever be a circumstance like, like what I'm saying, like, I don't even think my therapist would be like open to it, <laughs> you know, it's not, even, not yeah. yeah. It's, and I think part of it, mm-hmm. too, it, some of that too, is coming from a place of like that fantasy, right? That fantasy that one day we're going to have the parent that we always wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Right. Or we're going to get the apology or we're going to get the, you know, validation for our experience or whatever. And you're right. We have to be realistic. Like, n- it's most likely that none of that is going to happen. And in fact, it may even, they may even double down on how they've treated you in the past. Mm -hmm. And so, um, or they may put on a great show in front of your therapist, you know, like that happens too, right. Where they're like the gregarious, like, Oh, you know, so likable. And you're like, no, this person's actually a villain. Who the fuck is this? (laughs) Um, Okay. Do you want to talk about all the various things you have going on? So I know you said you have a, a workshop coming up and then you also have an online community too, right? Well, I, yeah, I, I actually, I'm not doing any um, online groups or anything like that, but I just created a workbook um, for codependency recovery. So feel free to check that out. Um, And the other thing that I I love is my Oracle cards, which, um, you know, I could, we could have a whole talk on that, but those are also really helpful in terms of doing some relationship work, even relationship with yourself. And they have a spiritual um, tone to that. So when you, when you did this codependency workbook, 
what did you feel like you wanted to bring to the table that doesn't already already exist? Because there's obviously tons of codependency books and workbooks out there. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it, this workbook came to me like literally in the middle of the night. Mm. It was like it just came. Yeah. I wrote it all down. And um, so I just trust that for whatever reason, um, it's meant to be out there. And, and, you know, it's specific to how I talk about codependency. Everyone's very different about it, but I like to talk about it in the specific way that I do and really like focus on um, certain pieces that we talked about here today. So there's stuff on boundaries, of course, there's pieces around acceptance, there's pieces around resentment, there's looking at, um, you know, how you even identify yourself. Um, and, and it gives some tips in terms of like how we can ask for our needs to get met, um, and ask for our boundaries to be respected and things like that. Is this something that you think that people can go through on their own or it would be better to do in a group or with a therapist? No, I think you can go through it on your own and you could keep going back to it whenever. Um, and it should be a reference, you know, like, okay, what's going on? Let me check out the feelings, um, you know, page and see where I'm at today. Um, so it's, it should be like a quick pick it up, look through it or spend a day journaling or whatever it is. You know, there's no, there's no like right way to be done. Well, this has been great. I'll include all your shit in the show notes so everyone can find you. So I really appreciate your you. time. Thank you. I appreciate being here and thank you so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know you did. As always, seek help now if that you didn't get anything out of that. Okay? You got issues. Thanks again to Alana Carvalho. Go check her shit out. She's got a lot of good shit going on there. So this past weekend, my dear friend Sophie, Sophie, who was part of the Shisho Nation, Pirate Sophie, she flew down here and uh, and decorated my apartment for me. She did such an amazing job, and it really feels like a home now. So I'm so incredibly grateful. Thank you, Sophie. Um, right before I sat down to the record this, I stuffed my face with uh, ribs and mac and cheese and baked beans and collard grains. But yeah, so I'm in a bit of food coma. I will catch you on the dark side of the moon next week for a fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super awesome, super full. Super excited for you out of here. It's going to be a good day, I promise. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.